Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the increasing signs of the rise of American theocracy, with a theocratic Supreme Court in Alabama ruling that frozen embryos are people, and to think otherwise invites the wrath of God, and Mike Johnson's invocation of God at a House Republican retreat over the weekend that turned into a sermon, not a strategy meeting, and reporting from Politico that reveals Trump's choice for a chief of staff is an ardent Christian nationalist, Russell Vought, who would radically change the U.S. from a democracy into something akin to the government in Iran. Joining us is Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer at Salon. She is the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Effing Liberals, America, and the Truth Itself, and we will discuss her latest article at Salon. Donald Trump may not believe in God, but he still plans to turn America into a Christian theocracy. Then we'll examine the evidence now emerging that the source of the House Republicans and Fox News' impeachment case against the so-called Biden crime family is a dissembler working for Russian intelligence. Joining us to discuss that and Putin's increasingly brazen use of assassination with Navalny killed to coincide with the Munich Security Conference is Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude. He's considered one of the foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. Then finally, we'll explore a plan to reinvent the polarized and dysfunctional U.S. government to make our democracy more representative and functional. Joining us is Maxwell Stearns, a professor of law at the University of Maryland, Cary School of Law. He has authored dozens of articles and several books on the Constitution, the Supreme Court, and the economic analysis of law. And his latest book, Out Soon, is Parliamentary America, The Least Radical Means of Radically Repairing Our Broken Democracy. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep Background Briefing independent, corporate, and commercial-free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. And her latest article at Salon is Donald Trump May Not Believe in God, But He Plans to Turn America Into a Christian Theocracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Amanda Marcotte. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's hard to know where to begin uh, in terms of... America's uh, drift into theocracy, uh, led by the Antichrist himself, Donald Trump. Politico has revealed an extraordinary amount of information about Trump allies who are preparing to infuse Christian nationalism in his second administration with Russell Vought, the president of the Center for Renewing America, as uh, Trump's chief of staff. There's also, of course, this bizarre Alabama court ruling on frozen embryos, uh, which was a, written by a, an ins- <laughs> a theocrat who turns out to be the chief justice in Alabama. And then, of course, the Mike Johnson over the weekend was down in Miami. He was kissing Trump's ring, but he also went to a GOP House retreat at which many members of the Republican conference that were there at the retreat have leaked that they were appalled by what they thought was going to be a Republican strategy meeting, but instead Mike Johnson gave a a sermon and talked about how God was, in in effect, more important than politics. So since I don't know where to start, where would you start, Amanda? Uh, um, It's your show, so... (laughs) (laughs) Well... 
your article basically is sort of synthesizing all of what we've been talking about. And why then are the Biden people not making this case that not only they've made the case that American democracy is under threat, but they haven't made the case that the plan is to destroy American democracy and replace it with a Putin-like autocracy and a theocracy. In other words, if Trump is elected, we're going to be living in Putin's America. Yeah, the problem is that the re- the yeah the re- I I don't blame the Biden administration for not running on this because the fact of the matter is you are coming up against a number of obstacles to getting that message across to the people who need to get it. First of all, the the people that understand the words Christian theocracy and know that that's bad and are willing to engage that argument um, are already 100% voting for Democrats. So they're not, you don't have to worry about those people. (laughs) Like, so you be, it's that one's a classic preaching to the choir situation. So what Biden needs to do is appeal to people that may not vote um, or appeal to people that might vote for Trump. Like you're, you're, the whole point of a campaign is not trying to speak to the people that were already going to vote for you, but try to get more people to vote for you. And the problem with like Trump wants the Christian theocracy is two things. You have a lot of voters who just hear the word Christian and go, whoa, that's good. What's the problem with that? And so they've tuned out the rest of the argument. And then you have people that are like, whatever, Trump doesn't even believe in God. How are you trying to convince me he wants a Christian theocracy when he doesn't even go to church? There's just too many pieces to put together in a campaign ad or a bumper sticker. You just can't campaign on something that doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, unfortunately, in our short attention span era. So... Yeah, Biden can't campaign on this. What he can do is sort of break like little individual pieces of this out and campaign on that. And and they are definitely doing that. Trump is going to ban abortion. Like they are definitely campaigning on that. And that's a huge part of the Christian theocracy he has planned. And the good news is unlike with some of the like bigger lifts of like trying to convince people that even though he doesn't actually believe in God, he's somehow a Christian theocrat, which is true, but Please read my article to understand why. He's going to ban abortion. You can make that case pretty quickly because there's clips of him bragging about getting Roe versus Wade overturned. Um, Sorry, that was a long-winded answer, but I think it's really important to understand Biden can't just campaign on everything. He has to campaign on stuff that people will understand. Right, but at this moment, Biden is trying to put pressure on Mike Johnson, who's holding up aid to Ukraine. And just to quote from your article, I think you're making an argument which I wish Biden was making. You write that Putin's Russia is a model of the Christian dictatorship that MAGA Republicans want. Even though he's a murderous authoritarian, Putin frequently portrays himself as a devoted Christian whose violent and oppressive ways are in service of protecting his faith. Like his allies in the US, however, Putin's Christianity is not about love and compassion. He regularly murders his critics and, of course, is currently inflicting mass death on Ukrainians. Putin's Christianity is defined by who he hates, feminists, LGBTQ people, Ukrainians, and anyone perceived as liberal or open-minded. And frankly, with the murder of Navalny, this is resonating, isn't it? It's it's more than out there in the zeitgeist. But with who? I mean, so your argument is... He needs to be pressuring Mike Johnson. But if Mike Johnson already likes Putin and thinks that Putin's Russia is what the U.S. should be like, isn't saying this makes you like Vladimir Putin like a compliment to Mike Johnson? Like he's like, yes, I want to be like Vladimir Putin. I want Putin's Russia. That's the goal. Now, Mike Johnson won't say that to the public because you're correct. That's not popular with the public. I mean, that's why Republicans play a bunch of word games with this like America first kind of language when it comes to Ukraine funding, right? They don't, they never go, we want Putin to win. That's why we're cutting off Ukraine's funding, even though that's obviously the reason why. Instead, they make these arguments about, well, we want to spend the money on Americans first and stuff in it because that's a much more politically popular point of view. Um, And it, it just goes to show why 
having these debates, these complicated debates in the campaign space is really difficult because the fact of the matter is that just try without knocking people out and causing them to fall asleep to explain why any money we spend on Ukraine is not actually coming out of anyone's pockets here at home. There's actually a very important explanation for why aid to Ukraine does not actually take anything away from Americans and, in fact, can save us money in the long run. But unfortunately, it's exactly the sort of thing that's going to cause most people to be like, zoop, 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 I'm just going to turn the channel over to the next episode of The Bachelor, right? Right. Well, of course, the money doesn't go to Ukraine. It goes to the military-industrial complex, which Republicans and MAGA Republicans always vote in support of, along with Democrats. That's the sacred cow. We always increase the defense budget. So to that extent, their arguments are totally specious. But I was thinking more along the lines of Biden could at least say, you know, Mike, you're a good Christian, but you got it wrong. You may share your hatred of homosexuals with Putin, but Putin's bans your own religious sect, the Baptists. They're not even allowed to practice. He uh, is not. Johnson doesn't publicly defend Vladimir Putin. And that's the problem. We're dealing with people that are arguing in bad faith. And in a media environment where most journalists are like very reluctant to say, like, gosh, when you sort of add up refusal to aid, aid Ukraine, backing Trump while he said, asked Russia to invade other countries, et cetera, et cetera. We can kind of see a pro-Putin sort of like picture start to form. But since Republicans will never admit it, we're kind of stuck being like, well, they're officially anti-Putin, even if everything they do is in the support of him. Well, do you think then, to touch on one of the other aspects of theocracy that I mentioned in the beginning, the Alabama court ruling on frozen embryos, do you think that maybe is a like a bridge too far or a piece of theocratic insanity too far? Um, we'll see. It's always an interesting thing. I think it's 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 kind of cuts both ways, right? On one hand, they kind of claim that the ban on IVF is that they want is just being consistent with this view that embryos are people too, which I think can can maybe help them a little bit, you know, like people weirdly, I don't know. I don't know if that would help them. On the other hand, obviously, like when it comes to the brass tax, a lot of Americans, use IVF. A lot of people think of IVF in a good light because it's helping women do what they're quote unquote supposed to do, which is to have children and taking that tool away from people. Well, it's, it's at best confusing for a lot of people, like why you would do that. And so, you know, I hope it helps draw some more attention towards their radicalism. Um, I worry that it's going to end up reading as like, gosh, they're just really sincere, aren't they? Which isn't true. I think that the reason that conservatives don't like IVF very much is not because they genuinely think embryos are people. I think it's that it's because they associate IVF with women who delay motherhood into their 30s and then use fertility treatments to make up for the fact that they aren't as fertile as they were in their 20s. And, and conservatives want women to be having children before they get jobs um, so that their careers are kind of permanently stalled out. Well, the Alabama Supreme Court Chief Justice Tom Parker, in his ruling, basically invoked the wrath of God and quoted from Genesis, noting that, "'Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. And the irony of this case is that a couple who had embryos frozen and wanted to have children, uh, there was an accident at the clinic where somebody dropped the tray and destroyed the embryos, and they sued. And now the ruling in the, by this Alabama Supreme Court essentially makes people who want to have children via IVF almost impossible because People are afraid to be called murderers if uh, they make a mistake and a frozen embryo is destroyed. 
because now the ruling is that frozen embryos are people. Yeah, I mean, and that's part of why this whole story can be very confusing. I, I will say the press has been covering it pretty well, which is exactly what you said. They're really focusing on the fact that this is, you know, if this plays out, it's going to basically decimate the IVF industry. And, yeah, I mean, it's ironic that the people that work behind this didn't wanted to use IVF <laughs> and, and that I think allows the conservatives to like pretend that they're sort of on the side of a, a victim of some sort. But yeah, the whole point of this is to make sure that women don't have access to IVF and to punish women who wait until their thirties to have children by making sure that they never get to. Well, just in closing, I'm just terrified that uh, we are moving into a theocracy and that your article is absolutely on point, that uh, Russell Vought and company plan to turn America into a theocracy and uh, Trump is the, the vessel through which they do it and Mike Johnson is a f more than the nose of the camel or the foot in the door at the re Republican retreat over the weekend. Speaker Johnson contended that when one does not have God in their life, the government or state will become their guide, referring back to the biblical verses. Um, so this is all happening, and I don't know that we're fighting back sufficiently. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what that would look like, fighting back. I think it is helpful to just sort of break out these individual stories and, and try to like get people to focus on the impacts because... Sometimes when we take the 30,000-foot view, it can be a little daunting for people. Right, but it is still the tyranny of the minority that we're talking about. We are a majority. Yes, absolutely. And that we should act like a majority. Yes. Well, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, Amanda. Thank you for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America and Truth Itself. And her latest article at Salon is Donald Trump May Not Believe in God, But He Still Plans to Turn America into a Christian Theocracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the evidence now emerging that the source of the House Republicans and Fox News' impeachment case against the so-called Biden crime family is a dissembler working for Russian intelligence. All these years I've stayed at home while you had all your fun And every year that's gone by another baby's come there's gonna be some changes made right here on Nursery Hill. You set this chicken your last time, cause now I've got the pill. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude, and he's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the rise of Putin's Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Baer. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. I want to talk about how Putin is being more and more brazen, um, which if, <laughs> if that's possible. But let's start with the fact that now this FBI informant named Alexander Smirnov, who was arrested recently in Las Vegas, Nevada, he was accused of lying when he claimed bribes were paid to the Bidens via the Ukrainian energy firm Burisma, which has become a huge issue and led to the impeachment of Hunter Biden and the attempts to impeach uh, Biden himself. Fox News have really beaten the drum along with Coma, the chair of the Oversight Committee, and also the chair of the, the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, has been piling on. But it turns out this guy is a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen, but he also has contacts, uh, high-level contacts in Russian intelligence. So 
Does this go back to the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, going back to early 1980s, when there was this effort to get free Soviet Jewry, where the KGB just seeded the exodus of Russian Jewry with all kinds of gangsters that moved to Brighton Beach along with a KGB plants, uh, because there's a lot of uh, uh, organized Russian organized crime now uh, having become Israeli organized crime. And this guy is obviously, as a dual U.S.-Israeli citizen, appears to be working for the Russians. Oh, I think almost definitely this is part of Russia's campaign to put Trump back in the White House. And the way they do it is it may sound clumsy to you and me, but they just they they seed uh, these lies in the, in the American body politic, which people believe. Remember that that the far right in this in this country is willing to believe anything about Biden and Democrats and liberals. So if the Russians come along with a clear fabricator like this, we know he's a fabricator. Give them some disinformation. They put it out there. It will stick in, in a lot of people's minds come election time. I mean, it's clear that the guy's a liar. He said that Hunter Biden was in Ukraine on such and such date when Hunter Biden never visited the place. And the fact that the guy has admitted taking disinformation from Russian intelligence should be enough to just completely discredit him. But I guarantee you it won't be. And I guarantee you that this is just the beginning of Russia's campaign to change American elections and put Trump back in the White House because they want NATO to dissolve, then the Russians get the whole thing. You know, whether it's going to happen or not, I don't know, but that's the intent. And what do we know about Russia's penetration? I mean, my understanding is, and particularly from your most recent book, The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia, that book leaves you with the impression that we're completely blind about what uh, what Russia is up to, and we don't even know the whole story of how Putin came to power and who backed him and how the KGB essentially uh, had took over Russia and engineered the collapse of its uh, the brief flirtation with freedom and democracy in Russia. I mean, your book, my understanding is that... Well, I mean, it, my book is what we don't know about Russia. And one of the things in the in the book was that come 1999, when he comes to power, Putin, we have no idea who he is, who backed him, how did he end up in the Kremlin in the first place under Yeltsin, and it's what we don't know about Russia. I mean, we 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 don't know how active the Russian intelligence is with the far right, what they're doing in Washington. I mean, there's some, a lot of people dispute there even was a fourth man. That's how ignorant we are. And maybe they're right. I don't know. What do I know? I mean, I haven't seen the evidence, but it's what we don't know about Russia, which scares me. Um, and we don't know what their plans are. And the FBI is confused about Smirnov, who he was. He's been on the FBI payroll for years got paid a lot of money, but it's only now that they've come around to figuring out he was a fabricator. Um, I assume that he was run into run into the FBI from the beginning, but I, of course I wouldn't know that for sure. Right, but doesn't this look like a continuation of what Litvinenko, who was a GRU plant, who was working hand-in-hand hand as, as Manafort's deputy, and Manafort was was a campaign manager of uh, Trump's 2016 campaign and had close ties to the pro-Russian regime in Ukraine. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean everybody, and there's so many people that, with, with, that Trump brought in with very shady connections with Russian money, but it's just like Wall Street. I mean, Wall Street in the 80s and 90s lived off Russian money, but we can't figure out like with Trump, whether it was the KGB looking for political influence or just laundering money. I mean, it, it, it's either or. But remember well, that Russia is a gangster state, so it doesn't really matter. Right. And, and 
Putin started out in Leningrad as a gangster, didn't he? Wasn't he essentially running the mob, the Bratva, in uh, Leningrad before he moved to Moscow and then got into the, mysteriously got into the Yeltsin uh, camp? Well, yeah, I mean, St. Petersburg is notorious for the mob up there, and and the KGB took it under its wings. Remember that as as the Soviet Union began to fall, it let the KGB take over its international trade, especially oil, exporting oil, and that's exactly what Putin was into in, in Petersburg, was oil. And to deal in oil in Russia, you have to be a mobster. Um, don't, somebody like Sechin was a, had been a KGB agent. He's, just, he's a big oil guy now, one of closest uh, Putin's closest advisors. And and it's 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 and it's all these dead bodies that you st- you really wonder about. You've got the, the helicopter pilot in Spain that was just found shot, mutilated. You've you've got Navalny, which was I have to assume that Putin had him murdered. And as we've been talking about, right right in the middle of the Munich Security Conference, it was a message that I am on the move. I am going to take Ukraine back in some form, and then I'm going to head on to the Baltics and other places. This is what he's signaling over and over again. He's not backing down after that initial invasion of Ukraine. He's not backing down. He's going to come after our politics. He's going to come after right-wing politics in Europe, and he's not going to stop. Of course, you and I have no idea whether he's going to succeed, but this is what his ambitions are. Right. Well, I assume that the timing of the hit on Navalny would coincide with the Munich Security Conference. And Nancy Pelosi has also gone public and said that's what she believes happened as well. But during the Cold War, when you were working against Russia, against the Soviet Union, there was, wasn't there an agreement between the intelligence services not to kill each other? And it seems like now, and particularly not to for the Russians not to kill people on American soil, well, Putin's been doing all kinds of hits on American soil, hasn't he? Well, one for sure we know about is in Miami when um, there's been an indictment. And it looks like to me is that the intent was to kill a Russian defector who was living in Trump Tower. Uh, with Nabichuk. They're going to put on his door handle and kill him. So, yes, I mean, Stalin in in 45, 46 was killing people on American soil, but that sort of went away. There was a, a, a tacit agreement. Now, so far, we don't know about the Russians killing any Americans. But what Putin looks at the world is anybody who disagrees with me, any Russian, is automatically a traitor. And by law, Putin can order their their murder, whether it's in Berlin, as we know, there was a there was Chechen assassinated there, Skripal and Litvinenko. So, I mean, it, it's it's not it's not in doubt. This is not a conspiracy theory. Any Russian that crosses Putin is fair game. But wasn't there a high ranking Russian uh, lesson who had all the goods on Putin's money laundering uh, and the billions that he's stolen? And he was about to testify to, I think, the Treasury Department or FinCEN or somebody. Yes. And the day before that, he's found dead in his Manhattan hotel room. He was found actually in the DuPont Circle uh, Hotel. And what was strange about the case was he was definitely drunk. And he had he'd fallen down a couple of times. His hyoid was crushed. And normally a forensic pathologist will tell you that if the hyoid is crushed, the guy's been strangled. So there's a dispute. The police, since they have no evidence that he was killed, you know, no good evidence, tends to just write it as off as an accident. But the question is, how, how did his hyoid, hyoid get crushed? You can't do that by falling down. It has to be done manually. And that's the doubt. Um, and, and then there was a guy that went off his apartment building on M Street. That's considered a suicide, even though he had this phone in his hand. He was in his flip-flops, his orange flip-flops, for what it's worth. And he goes out in the middle of the day. And people that I know that knew him as business partner said he would never commit suicide. But again, it's so ambiguous, the evidence, it's, it's hard to... It, so that's why I go back to Miami. Miami, there's an indictment. 
I feel very confident about that, that Putin is ready to murder an American citizen in the United States because this defector has American citizenship. So here he's crossed the line. We never thought he would. Well, what more uh, evidence do we need? I mean, it's just unbelievable. And you've got these information warfare characters like uh, Smirnoff that we we started the conversation with, who's just um, now the Justice Department have just revealed that he's been working with high-level uh, Russian uh, intelligence officials. Yeah, he was a provocation. I mean, that's that's the assumption. If you're reading between, that's what they've said, reading between the lines. You just have to assume from the very beginning, Smirnov was was a, a Russian plant, a dangle or whatever, you know, you want to call him. Um, and it worked because the Republicans took a raw FBI report and introduced it as if it were fact. These raw reports can never be trusted because the FBI is obligated to sit down and hear these people out. They may not believe it. They put it on paper. It may take years to clear it up. You certainly don't take that as finished intelligence, which is what the Republicans have done. Right. Well, Senator Grassley was the first to leak it, and then Comer and Jordan and Fox News just piled on and beat the drum on this thing. And hopefully, I mean, it's blown up in their faces, but they're pretty shameless. I don't know whether it's going to make any difference. Yeah, but Ian, the American body politic won't get the nuances of this. And they say, look, it's an FBI report. Biden took $5 million. Uh, they will not remember that this was debunked. Mm. I mean, these, these conspiracy theories just have lives of their own, and they continue, and people believe them. And when they get to the voting booth, they're going to say, you know, the Biden criminal family, and they're going to vote against him. And you think this is going to accelerate? This is just like a, a preview, a teaser for the, the main put, campaign I, in 2024? I put myself in Putin's shoes, and if you want to take back the Ukraine and the Baltics and whatever your plans are, I would do everything possible. I would order my intelligence services and do a better job than they did in 2016 to put Trump back in the White House. It, it, you know, whether they can or not doesn't matter, but that's what Putin's going to do. I mean, wouldn't you if you're Putin? Absolutely. Well, I would, but I mean, why can't the American press and in the Democratic Party make the case to the American people that Trump is either a useful idiot or a traitor? People have stopped listening. And, you know, the flyover states, they don't listen anymore. They, they, these are all social issues they're dealing with, like LGBT, um, you know, Things like this. This is this is what's driving people, and this foreign policy stuff is just over their heads. They don't understand it. They don't understand who Putin is. They don't understand what it would mean to pull out of NATO. Right, but in your new book, The Fourth Man, you make the case that the people that are supposed to know about Russia and know about Putin, the CIA, don't really know that much. Well, I mean, the, the problem is there's one thing is the, the CIA stopped spying on Russia in the 90s. I was in there and I saw the messages saying, hey, it's no longer an enemy. So as Putin's come to power, there's no mandate inside the CIA to look into what's happening in Moscow. I, I know this for a fact. So whatever, whether there was a spy or not is really irrelevant. It's just we closed down shop. Uh, the CIA didn't and, and no one believed it. And so that. The ambassador at the time when Putin comes to power says, I never saw anything out of the CIA. It wasn't looking at the KGB. It wasn't looking at, at anything. Um, and the, the national security director told me the same thing, Medish. Um, and the people on the desk said, we just sort of, it was, it was, it was done. So it's, it was, Putin has come out of nowhere in a surprise. And the more he turns Russia into a police state, the harder it is to spy. You simply cannot walk around Moscow and ask questions about any of these issues, because you end up like the Wall Street Journal journalist, and you'll end up in prison. So we, it, it's it's a it's a denied area. It's a black hole. We can't see into it. We don't, really don't know what he's going to do after Ukraine. We have no idea. You can read Telegram, but that's not considered great intelligence, you know. Um, and there's no newspaper coverage on, but either of of any of these cr crucial engines. So we are blind. Yes, we are blind.
Well, we may be blind, but Putin is on a roll, right? I mean, he's killing people right, left, and center, and Navalny, and uh, now we find out a glimpse into his information warfare campaign for the 2024 elections to elect Trump with uh, Smirnoff. Pogosian killed him in the airplane, and Navalny are a middle finger to us. We don't care about your human rights stuff and the rest of it, and and we have the upper hand, and we're just going to... He, he, Putin thinks he's Joseph Stalin, you know, in 1942. Well, I'll just grind the Germans down until they give up. And that's what he's doing in Ukraine. He's going to keep on using North Korean 155 you know, artillery shells to flatten Ukraine. And he doesn't care that he lost uh, last couple of weeks 16,000 soldiers. He, think, he takes it a matter of pride that all these Russians are dying. Right. Well, a lot of them aren't Russians, by the way. They're, he's got 20,000 Cubans. They're minorities, yeah. Yeah, and the minorities of Russians, minorities, and 20,000 Cubans and 15,000 Nepalese fighting in Ukraine. Well, uh, Robert Bear, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Bear, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington's Hold Our Soul for Saudi Crude. And he's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back exploring a plan to reinvent the polarized and dysfunctional U.S. government to make our democracy more representative and functional. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Maxwell Stearns, a professor of law at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law. He has authored dozens of articles and several books on the Constitution, the Supreme Court, and the economic analysis of law. His latest book just out is Parliamentary America, The Least Radical Means of Radically Repairing Our Broken Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Maxwell Stearns. Thank you, Ian, for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's no question that our government is dysfunctional and broken. And in many ways, the counter-majoritarian nature of it is is built in with the Electoral College, etc., and other, other aspects of the way the Founding Fathers set up our government. And clearly, we have a counter-majoritarian situation now with aid to Ukraine, where the majority in both the Senate and the House uh, would vote for aid for Ukraine, but it's being held up essentially by the new speaker who is taking his orders from the head of the GOP, Donald Trump. So how would your proposals alter that particular system, just starting with today's dysfunction? So what I'm proposing is a system that would dramatically reduce the ability of a minority, as you describe, to hold up or lock up our systems of government. So what I'm suggesting is that the dysfunction that you rightly describe requires changes on two aspects of our um, of our electoral system, one involving how we elect the lower chamber, the House of Representatives, and the second involving how we select and hold accountable the president. And what I'm suggesting in the book is that we have to avoid the twin threats to democracy, and we're experiencing one of them. There are other systems that experience the threat from the other side. Two-party presidentialism allows, as you're suggesting, rightly so, a candidate representing essentially a minority constituency to take control of one party and then potentially take control of the entire government. The flip side threat is if you have a hyper-fragmented um, legislature where a small party gains more seats than any other party and then begins to roll over 
the 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 parliament in a systemic effort to gain power. So what I'm saying we need to do is come up with a system that embeds proportional representation, coalition governance, but achieves that sweet spot of not having too many parties and not having too few, avoiding the twin threats to democracy, because that's the way that you make government more accountable, you make voters more enthusiastic and happier, they're more likely to turn out to vote, and the government is more responsive, and you can really face down the dire threat that an authoritarian leader poses to a democracy. So in other words, the examples you're giving uh, the United States at the moment, with its dysfunction led by Trump and Mike uh, Johnson, and on the other side, if you went to a full-on parliamentary system, the example of dysfunction would be in Israel, for example, where very, very small parties have disproportionate sway over the government, as you can well, see Well, now. certainly certainly Israel is an example. Italy is an example. You can look at Brazil, um, which is a, a sort of a multi-party presidential system. There are plenty of examples where right? you could you can you could think of the rise of Nazi Germany also as an example. There there are plenty of examples in which very fragmented party systems allow somebody to seize control. And you mentioned the US. We can also look at the UK. We can look at the history of Brexit as connected with a similar dynamic to the rise of Trump in the United States. So yes, absolutely correct. What we have to do is create a system that avoids those competing threats by hitting that sweet spot, the kind of the Goldilocks principle. Um, and I, in the book, explain how we can get there and why this is so vital to ensuring against the threat to our democracy. And, and, and coming back to your, your earlier, your opening comment, you're absolutely right that a coalition system would allow centrist Democrats and centrist Republicans to get together to effectuate policies in line with majoritarian preferences throughout the United States that are thwarted by the capture of the GOP by, by Donald Trump and his base supporters, notwithstanding that a majority of Americans across the parties would support a set of policies that he is effectively blocking from being enacted even out of power. So uh, briefly then, Maxwell, walk us through the solutions because obviously a lot of our listeners will, will say, well, you know, it's incredibly hard in this country to change the constitution in any way. It's it's the, the bar is set so high. You know, one of the examples is how do you get rid of the electoral college, which almost everybody realizes is antiquated and counterproductive, given that lately more and more presidents, particularly on the Republican side, are getting elected with fewer popular votes. And if Trump is re-elected, he could get re-elected by minus 10 million, <laughs> be down 10 million in the popular vote. Well, well, in fact, that that that's certainly that's certainly correct. I mean, he he won the presidency against Hillary Clinton by negative three million votes. Biden defeated him four years later by seven million votes. But you're right that the Electoral College creates this risk of what I call upside down elections, where the candidate that loses the popular vote nonetheless wins the Electoral College vote. It's happened five times in our entire history, twice in modern history, the uh, Bush versus Gore election, and of course, Donald Trump in 2016, so 2000 and 2016. Um, one thing I'll add about the Electoral College, fixing that doesn't solve the fundamental threat to democracy. It would end upside down elections, but it might actually create some additional risks to the capacity of our democracy to thrive. One thing the Electoral College does accomplish is cabining challenges um, to problematic voting outcomes. It creates a kind of harmless error rule. If you go back to the election in 2000, there were several states where there were alleged voting improprieties, but everybody knew that the only state that mattered was Florida, because whichever candidate, Bush or Gore, got those 25 Electoral College votes would win. If we eliminated the Electoral College, then you could see challenges and efforts to suppress votes literally anywhere in the United States. It's not, it's, it, it's not necessarily the case that that's going to further the objectives of democracy as opposed to motivating strategies that are anti-democratic by 
um, the the GOP, which is a um, which is an increasingly minority party. But the solutions that I'm proposing do involve three amendments. The First Amendment is going to double the House of Representatives, and it's going to do it through a system called mixed member proportionality. So instead of voting directly for the president, citizens would cast two ballots in the House of Representatives, one in a district election, just like they do now, and the second ballot would be by party. The consequence of that, and, and would, would use the party balloting state by state to achieve proportional representation for the state's delegation to the House of Representatives. And the effect of that would be that no party would predictably pick up a majority of seats. And the only way to effectively govern would be through multi-party coalitions, which would fundamentally change the nature of campaigning because you could no longer win by denigrating the other side. You would have to campaign on a platform that speaks to a willingness and enthusiasm for governing with others, even those with whom we disagree. It would be a very different um, dynamic. The, 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 the most dramatic part of the change that I propose is having uh, coalitions within the House of Representatives form a majority of seats, and then the pre-designated um, slate of president and vice president for the leader of the majority coalition would then occupy the, um, the presidency and vice presidency on the same fixed calendar that we have now. So it would avoid some of the problems we see in parliamentary systems that can't achieve an outcome. It's got a backstop to make sure that that doesn't happen. And then there's also an additional provision for removal. But I want to come back to one very important comment that you made, which is that everybody understands the challenge of amending. And we can get into the, the details of that. But I think that there is a fundamental mistake that commentators on, uh, on, on constitutional reform are making. People seem to think that the wisest proposals avoid amending, but the mistake is that many of the proposals that avoid amending, in fact, most of them, translate into unemployment acts for sitting members of the House and Senate. My proposal is the only proposal available that actually leaves intact all of the offices of members of the House and Senate letting them remain incumbents in their existing districts or states, and in addition to leaving them in positions of power, it also gives members of the House a vital new power to negotiate in the selection of the president, and it gives voters much more meaningful, meaningful influence on the direction of the government and the direction of policy than the constant admonition every four years to vote for the lesser of two evils. So I think that there's just a mistake in thinking that avoiding amending is the best way to bring about reform, especially when we need members of Congress, almost certainly, to effectuate amending. We've never had a constitutional convention called by states. And if we did, the proposals that I advanced become even more attractive because it becomes a pressure release valve against other reforms that might actually have the effect of making it less likely that sitting members of the House and Senate keep their jobs. Well, it's the Koch brothers that are backing the idea of basically opening up the Constitution to, uh, to essentially making it a blank sheet of paper, the Constitutional Convention. This never happened, as you point out. But it's not without danger, is it? Oh, it's absolutely not without danger. Now, we've come close. We've come close twice in the past within one state or two states. You need two thirds of the states to call a convention. And then, of course, any amendments that are proposed have to be ratified by three quarters of the states. And the point that I'm trying to make is that if we were to have a convention, it's possible that we end up with a lot of reforms being proposed, but those reforms wouldn't necessarily solve the constitutional crisis that we are facing. And what I do in this book is I diagnose the problem very specifically. I explain how we got to where we are. I take the readers on a virtual world, world tour to seven countries, to England, France, Germany, Israel, Taiwan, Brazil, and Venezuela. And I do it to show them how different systems of democracy work or fail to work and how different nations have faced down their own threats to democracy. And the danger with the convention is that it may not be targeted 
at the specific problems or pathologies that are actually causing our constitutional crisis. The subtitle of my book is The Least Radical Means of Radically Repairing Our Broken Democracy. I don't claim to fix every problem or make everybody happy with the proposals that I'm advancing. I do claim that the proposals that I'm advancing will end our constitutional crisis, allowing us to emerge a thriving constitutional democracy. And once we are a thriving constitutional democracy, we can take on other problems that we cannot take on now. But we need to have a very targeted set of solutions to fix the crisis that we face. And it's not at all clear that a constitutional convention would achieve that. And there's good reason to doubt that it would. But let's go back to the two-tier election system and how you elect the president. In a parliamentary system, of course, the party that gets the most votes, and if not the parties that form a coalition, choose the prime minister, right? But your system is different? Well, it's an adaptation of such a system. And what it does is it combines two essential features that political scientists widely agree is actually the best system, a system called mixed member proportionality, where you've got one cohort of seats based on districted representation in Germany, which was the first country to use this system. It's called constituency seats, the idea that the representatives in the, in the Bundestag, the lower chamber in Germany, represent a defined geographical constituency similar to the districts that we have for the House of Representatives. But then you also have an equal number of representatives that are elected by party. And, and, and what you do is in my system, which is an adaptation of that, you use the party votes to provide proportional representation on a state by state basis. The benefit of the combination is that when you have people elected by geography, you tend to have two dominant parties in those races. And so the idea is that you don't end up with the same kind of hyperfragmentation that you and I previously talked about, but you also don't end up with either of those somewhat larger parties likely to capture a majority of seats in the legislative chamber. And that means that you're going to have to form successful majority coalitions in order to succeed in forming a government. And so that allows you to reach that sweet spot, which political scientists typically think is between four and eight parties. And mixed member proportionality is custom designed to achieve just that, to avoid, to, to, to avoid that, that threat of either having too few parties or too many. But yes, then what you do is when you have your seated parties, the scheme I propose allows up to five seated parties in descending order of representation on a fixed calendar to lead negotiations until a majority coalition forms, again, subject to a backstop so that we absolutely have a clear schedule of when our government um, is going to transition. And it's the same schedule that we presently have. So that, that's essentially the scheme. The scheme is one that encourages voters to support third parties because now, the third parties that you vote for, even if they're not the head of a coalition, they're going to deliver something genuinely meaningful to their constituents because they're going to demand, as a precondition to joining a coalition, policy commitments by the head of the coalition and even favored appointments, cabinet positions perhaps, or even positions on the Supreme Court. And so it's no longer the case that voting for third parties is wasted. It avoids what I call the third party dilemma. The idea that our two-party system punishes voters for voting for third parties because they end up either supporting a spoiler, throwing weight to the major party candidate that the voter least prefers, or it pulls in votes from both sides and it makes the outcome a roll of the dice. And neither of those benefits voters, but the coalition-based scheme that I am proposing a version of MMP or mixed member proportionality actually does reward voters who support third parties and encourages third parties and other parties to campaign in a way that suggests the capacity to come together despite disagreements 
in the name of effective governance, which is exactly the opposite of what we have now. Because what we have now are two parties growing increasingly far apart and the campaigns typically entail denigrating the other side. It, you know, and, and we've gotten to a point now where we don't credit people who disagree with us as evaluating information and just reaching a different conclusion. We accuse them of lacking basic intelligence or even being evil. And a way to get past this is to actually motivate through institutions, leaders of parties to find common ground and to campaign on a commitment to be able to govern effectively with others. So how do you avoid the Israeli situation of having constant elections all the time? It, Israel is actually included on my world tour. Now, I will say that I, I the, the manuscript locked before the October 7th horror, um, and maybe that's a good thing because it would have been very difficult to incorporate all that. But the structure of government issue is, is, is very interesting. Israel is a very difficult situation because it's a, it's a very, very small country. It would be very challenging to divide Israel into geographical districts and have a system of MMP, although it would not be impossible. You actually do see it in countries that are relatively small. Taiwan has a version of it, not that different in size, um, although their system is called mixed member majoritarian, which tends to lead to two parties, which is what you're trying to avoid. But the difficulty with Israel is that they've they've manipulated their party qualification threshold downward in a fairly dramatic way, in part because that has allowed some of the smaller Arab parties to get representation. One thing Israel could theoretically do that would benefit it is to raise the, uh, the party qualification threshold to get fewer parties. I don't know if you know this, but back in 1996, Israel actually changed its electoral system um, and they, they enacted a law called the Direct Election of Prime Minister Law, which ran for a total of five years. So what they did was they actually had a system that was kind of, you could call it, you could call it semi-presidentialism, although Ganghoff, a, a German political scientist, referred to it as semi-parliamentarianism. But the idea was that you voted directly for the prime minister, which made it a sort of presidential model or semi-presidential model. And then you voted by party for representation in the Knesset. And what, what happened was you ended up with convergence to two parties in the um, Labour and Likud, specifically in the prime minister race, but you ended up with hyper-fragmentation in the, in the Knesset. Um, but they're not using a system of MMP or anything like it. I think the you know, what, one thing that I think could benefit Israel is to raise the party eligibility threshold. But I, Israel is a very difficult uh, place, but I don't think that Israel provides sort of a model of the kind of parliamentary system we want. And in fact, one of the reasons I included Israel was to show a model of a parliamentary system that we do not want, which is one that's purely proportional representation. And um, and as a result, ends up with too many parties. But it also is used to show the importance of these defining eligibility party thresholds. So the other question is, how do you get to a situation like, for example, in the UK, where the election campaigns only go on for a matter of weeks as opposed to years here in the United States? And given the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court, our politics have been captured by money, and the longer the elections go on, the more money pours in. Yeah, so it's an interesting thing. I, I, I had considered whether I wanted to include getting rid of Citizens United as part of the core proposal. I certainly despise the case. It's, I, I teach constitutional law, as you, as you know. Uh, but, I, but I think Citizens United is symptomatic of our two-party presidential system where the margins are so tight. So, so rather than target a, a, a sort of a symptom of the larger problem, what I'm trying to do is target the, the really significant underlying pathology, which is two-party presidentialism itself. And I think that that will, will ameliorate to some extent the incentives associated with you know, sort of dollars pumping into our politics. Of course, it still will happen. There's no question about it. The question is, um, whether it can be abated at some level that might that that that, that might make a 
um, might make a difference. But there was a there was a there was a point you made prior to the question about Citizens United. And I'm sorry, could you just remind me of that point? Well, that the UK elections only last for weeks, so right. we go on for years, and yeah, money no, gets excellent. spent. Up, so, up so, so here's here's what I what I say in the book, and I and and I think it's right. It is likely, at least in the short to medium term, if these proposals are adopted, that the very largest parties, the Democratic Party and the GOP, would continue to run a primary-based system. And it's likely that smaller parties, and I think that naturally embedded in our two parties are about five or six parties. I think that the Democrats include the traditional Democratic Party and progressives. The Republicans include traditional Republicans and the MAGA base. There's probably a Green Party. There might be a Libertarian Party. So I think that it's likely that the smaller parties that would splinter off would use a different kind of list party system and would be less likely for financial for financial reasons to run a caucus primary extended system. They would probably offer up Based on core members of the party, um, you know, deciding what the what what the lists are, including who would be at the top of the uh, party in the event that they actually led a coalition. But one of the things I do in the book is I actually come up with a timeline from the general election until the swearing in of the president, and say we have to divide this by five to allow each party the possibility of five uh, uh, an opportunity to negotiate until a majority coalition forms with a backstop. And the backstop is really a threat point, right? That in the absence of a successful majority coalition, the plurality, uh, the plurality party becomes the appointed successor to the president and vice president. And that backstop, the idea of it is precisely because it's potentially frightening. It sort of puts the feet to the fire of other party leaders to say, you must form a coalition if you want to avert, right? In other words, if the party that gets the plurality of seats, not a majority, but more seats than anybody else, is a Trump-like figure, right, or a Trump-like party, that puts substantial pressure on the other parties because they know what that backstop is. And so with a with a non-hyper-fragmented regime, you have the very considerable likelihood that parties would get together to avert that threat, realizing that we are on a fixed calendar. Because what we can't do, what the United States cannot afford to do is to have uncertainty as to the duration and timing of its governments. As, as, the, as, the, as the, the largest superpower in the world and largest economy in the world, we have to be able to make commitments to other nations. We have to commit also to stability of governance. So I don't displace, for example, um, the, the, the two-term presidency, the calendaring for the two-term presidency, and even the lines of succession in the event that a president fails to complete her or his term. So, so it's sort of sort of built in there. Right? But I also do recognize that Congress might want to jig, you know, sort of jigger around with that calendar. Um, and that's fine, so long as we have an actual calendar upon which other nations and voters can rely. And individual parties can make their own choices about whether they want to run primary caucus cycles or not, and and and, the, and and of course, voters, you know, will benefit by varieties of approaches that parties will take in answering that question. I don't think one size fits all here, any more than it does in other effective multi-party coalition-based systems. Well, Maxwell Stearns, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Maxwell Stearns, who's a professor of law at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law. He's authored dozens of articles and several books on the Constitution, the Supreme Court, and the economic analysis of law. And his latest book just out is Parliamentary America, The Least Radical Means of Radically Repairing Our Broken Democracy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305